<laughs> it's okay. It's just the ice. It's just the ice. It sounds really creepy that as if it's something on the roof is breaking and it's going to come crashing through at any moment. Nope, it's just ice. But it's scary that that stuff can actually hurt someone. It can. And it before we were the laughing thought, Texas can't handle winter, Texas can't handle ice or snow or anything, and really, we can barely handle rain sometimes. Yeah, well, <laughs> sad to say. Same with us. But it shuts the town. <laughs> it absolutely shuts the town down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's scary. No, I mean... We, 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 yeah, Californians are famous for not being able to drive in the rain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I used to hear that all the time, especially when I lived in L.A. They, they, that's all I heard. Californians can't drive in the rain. I'm like, well, I drive all the time. <laughs> and one of my friends from the East Coast, they said, no, it's different. <laughs> I'm going, how's it different? You guys are slow. You drive really slow. I go, no, they drive really fast and stupid. It's <laughs> crazy. I'm like, oh, my God. No, people drive really stupid in the rain. Yeah, I guess we have that. I mean, there's a mixture here. Definitely a mixture. We have a little bit of both. I, I, I... I think I'm pretty much in the middle. I drive normal. I just, I'm just very cautious. I make sure that there's space between me and the car ahead of me. I'm just not as much of in a hurry as I used to be. Oh yeah, that's real. I think I just realized that, you know, I give myself time to leave and make sure I, I have plenty of time so I'm not in that panic and I, I'll get there when I get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life has definitely, being um, a caregiver, life has definitely changed. I'm not always anxious about, a lot of times it's heading towards a doctor's appointment or something else. So now I'm like, I'll get there when I get there. And I'm just going to try and be in this present moment and enjoy the music on the radio and maybe take in a little bit of the scenery, but... It just is what it is now. Yep. Yeah, I understand that. It's interesting because one thing about me that I inherited from my father is I'm always early. Mm. Oh, yes. And I, I've i always done that. I've always, let's see, I'm supposed to be somewhere at 8, so I'll leave at 7, even though it's only uh-huh. about 20 minutes away. <laughs> well, that's what I grew up with, that military mindset of early is on time, on time is late, and late is unacceptable. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and my father... It's ingrained. My yeah. father was in the Air Force, so yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so is mine. So is mine. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but it's just interesting. Uh, Rabinowitz time is what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> We're always early. Um, I was uh, I would go really early to work, and I go into the office, and I'd start. I was a travel agent, and I would start working, and my boss would come in and said, "What are you doing?" 
I said, oh, I'm just setting up my stuff for the day. He said, but you're not being paid yet. I go, yeah, but I'd rather be prepared and everything all nice and neat than, you know, being all hassled when I have a person on the phone. Exactly. Being prepared never hurts anything. In fact, it makes it smoother when it comes time. Yeah, that's the way I feel, too. I still feel that way. And I don't work in an office anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My cat just jumped on my lap and she's uh, kneading my leg and it hurts. (laughs) Yep. She's Uh, showing you her love. (laughs) I know. I know. I know that's what it is because she's already settling down to lay down on my lap. But, it's uh, a funny thought. Sometimes love can hurt. Yes. <laughs> Especially with this one. But she's very pretty. And she's very sweet. And she's got a purr machine. <laughs> um, do you have, like, um, a favorite place to go just to, like, read or write or watch TV that that gives you a little privacy um, or do you are you more like in go with your family and watch it as a family how do you do your private time most of the time my private time is some, something where I need to go inward and so my private time is usually spent either at my meditation tree or uh, in my studio where I can actually close the door and let everybody wait while I process whatever I'm going through. But being that I grew up in a family that was somewhat dysfunctional, we started out doing things together as a family. I, I have my happy memories, and as we got older, we just kind of, became a little bit more distant and a little bit more dysfunctional communication-wise. And so when I came time to having my own family, I wanted to do things together as a family. I wanted to be able to find whether it was uh, TV, movie time, like Friday night movie night at the house versus an actual vacation time. I wanted to do things together as a, mem- as a family to create memories, mm-hmm. good memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was lucky my parents did that. Like, I think naturally. They just always were. My father would say on Sunday morning after he made our breakfast, he always made Sunday morning breakfast, which was mm-hmm. outrageous because I, no other father did that in my where I grew up mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at that time because I'm probably older than you. Um, um he would say, okay, kids, come on, let's pile in the car and get lost. And he, 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 that's what we would do. He had no idea where he was going to go. He just went somewhere, and we would end up in Beverly Hills or go to Long Beach at the Queen Mary, or we would go to um, uh, Magic Mountain as a surprise or Bush Gardens as a surprise or something like that. Um, we It was fun. And at that time, gas was cheaper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Very true. 
Sundays was playtime. Sundays were fun days for our family. That's that's right. my memory. That's true because we always had Saturday was our chore day, and got everything done on Saturday. And maybe by Saturday evening we'd have a pizza and a movie or something like that. And by Sunday we'd have our Sunday morning church, and then in Sunday afternoon. It was supposed to be that time of relaxation, but after a while, with the kids in the house driving them crazy, you would do something similar. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of the house. We got to get them into something else. And the last ones, we just ended up going to uh, community parks. And mm-hmm. we had one um, in close to downtown Austin called Zilker Park, and it was just you could the space where you could rent canoes or go hiking or flying kites and just doing all this kind of stuff that it was back then that was family time and having fun but now as a parent I thought oh my gosh they were getting us out of the house to wear us out so we'd get home and go to bed <laughs> <laughs> we had a park like that too we, it was Respita Park they had swans <laughs> oh how pretty and all I could think of the first time I saw it when I was about seven or eight was the movie Hans Christian Andersen with Danny Kaye. There's about the swan in the story and the, 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 mm-hmm. he's talking to the little boy about being a, the duck that wasn't a duck, he was a swan. And and I was like, oh my, it's Danny Kaye. <laughs> 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 I love I love going to the park. I love doing stuff like that. We had we had some really great parks in in LA. Yeah, that's something now as an adult I don't take for granted. Mm-hmm. And being able to get out of the house and go for that nature walk is just the mood changer. Yeah, yeah. We like to go to the, there's a lake that's near us, and we like to go to the lake and walk around and look at the ducks and see the squirrels and. And make friends with all the animals. (laughs) Well, we don't actually. I mean, you don't feed the animals because it's wrong to do that. Because I I didn't. I I I always wondered because when we went to the zoo, they it always says don't feed the animals, and I was like, why? (laughs) Yeah, you you think you're doing a good thing, but it actually isn't. Yeah. And yet. I remember other places where they ha they would have like a duck feeder machine and you could uh oh, right. buy a uh, food that for the duck that's actually duck food and mm-hmm. and uh, give it to the ducks and they would be eating the the food so it confused me. <laughs> right, do I feed them or not? Yeah. <laughs> Why is it okay in this place and it's not okay in that place? didn't make any sense. Exactly. But then, I mean, they don't have bears in the park or lions or giraffes. That's true. (laughs) I mean, now as an adult, I look back and, oh, okay, now I get it. (laughs) Isn't that amazing how many things you find when you get to a certain age that you start doing the reflection and going, oh, <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, that's why we weren't allowed just to run around the neighborhood and stuff like that. Uh, 
That, that's why our mom always told us to look both ways before we cross the street. <laughs> right, or not picking out on something sweet before dinner or in general. Or any time. Yeah. The sugar crash, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it also actually did spoil your food, your dinner. I mean, what what mom and dad used to say to you were right. <laughs> Which is so bizarre now because when I see my mother in her community before dinner time, they're usually giving them something sweet for that afternoon snack, and so they'll eat dinner at like four thirty, four forty-five, sometimes five o'clock. And I know that sounds insanely early, but they go to bed early too. And so by 3.30, they're having an afternoon snack, and a lot of times it's like a small cake or a cookie or two, and I'm thinking, aren't they going to spoil their dinner? But that sugar actually made them hungrier. That's but, interesting. Well, I remember as a kid it did the total opposite. Right. But I think our our biology, because, you know, your body changes every seven years, so by the time right. you're older, your biology's completely changed. Uh-huh. So maybe that's Absolutely. why. I don't know. It's, it is refreshing, of course, now. I have to actually watch and, and keep track of how much sugar I eat, where I never had to worry about it before, at least not to the extent now, but, I mean... The amount of sugar that my mother ate growing up and what I started to do, it's just looking back on all of it and going, wow, this makes a little bit more sense as to why she always had these mood spikes or why she was always lethargic after having so much sugar spike. It's just different times, different times now. Yeah. And also... It's different types of food. Food has changed. That is so true. Oh, my goodness. My The most recent book, I love, I still love reading and learning as much more than reading uh, sci-fi novels, and which is odd because definitely different many years ago. But the most recent book I have picked up this past weekend is Learning How to Eat Based Off of Our Blood Type. Well, that's interesting. I never heard of that one before. Very interesting because it really kind of puts a hole into all the trendy diets or um, crash diets to lose so many in a certain amount of time. But the trick is keeping it off and learning how to eat by the blood type to balance blood sugar, to keep weight off, to keep the heart healthy, all that good stuff. I thought, that is fascinating. So I'm anxious to get into this book and figure out, and of course I have to get my blood tested to find out what my type is, because I know I've been told several times in various different situations in the hospital, I've never paid attention because it was never something that was of concern. It's like, as long as they know, I'm good. Now I I really want to (laughs) know. It's weird because my nonfiction is my nonfiction are usually biographies or archaeology books or <laughs> I actually um really I'm weird. I I, 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 I don't do 
the normal, I mean, I have friends that are deeply into cooking and get, like, every cookbook that comes out. I mean, I have cookbooks. I have my own, I have, and I now have my mom's. Um, but, yeah, I've never been deeply, my brother's more into cooking than I am. I'm, he's, like, the one who was a trained chef, so I oh, I leave it to him because he's much better at it. <laughs> See, and this is something that I'm, I find fascinating now, now that I actually focus on what am I putting into my body. I want to learn how to cook. And, of course, now I really have to learn how to cook because being uh, gluten intolerant and trying to avoid any issues with celiacs, I really have to learn how to cook and get everything I need and not keel over one afternoon or be hangry the other <laughs> It's a work in progress. Yeah, but we all are. <laughs> of course. I'm wondering if this is what my body's changed to over the last seven years beforehand, what is it going to be in another seven years? My goodness. Yeah, it's it's so strange. Sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't even recognize myself. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know. I'm pretty much the same as I was, but I just... You can see, I can see time change. And oh, definitely. I don't have a problem with it in the way that other people of my generation do. I don't get Botox. I don't do any of that oh, stuff. Uh-huh. I, first of all, uh, if you're an actor, and I, I'm still a theater and, and radio actor, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do the Botox. I mean... Maybe the film actors can get away with it, but if you're a right. theater actor, you have to be able to open your mouth right? and make your and eyes widen. And, um, <laughs> and you can't do that with Botox. Your mm-hmm. face is paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, on that principle, also I just don't like the idea of somebody uh, putting poison into my face. That's just me. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> that is something I definitely have passed two years I've become a lot more passionate about not only what I put in my body, but what I put on my body. And finding out there's so many products out there that are designed to damage your skin so that their services are there ready to help fix all the damage. I know. It's been disappointing. But now now I know. Yeah, I know. I um what really got me was the the damage of dust powder. I used to use that. I was stunned. Um. The damage of dust powder. And I mean, I don't know if it has hurt. I haven't had any kind of physicality that shows me that, that, that I've had damage. But I didn't put it in places that the people who were putting it put it. If you know what I mean. <laughs> I put it on my chest, and I, you know, <laughs> I didn't right, put right. it in other areas. Uh, <laughs> that's crazy, yeah. Um, and uh, and that's basically where I've been hearing that it's the damage. So, but it's just I'm like, that is the most non. It, it it seems like the least deadly thing in the world was dust powder, you know. It was like it's like powder for your face. You just 
uh, you don't really think like that. But there are also certain powders for your face you have to be careful of. Yeah. Because they yeah. weren't very good for you. My mom was l- really lucky. She got Revlon, and which Revlon is very good for your face. They do, they don't have any of that toxic stuff in it. So her face stayed, her skin stayed perfect until even when she was old and she started getting wrinkles around her eyes and her mouth. Mm-hmm. The rest of her face was like a child. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. And see, and that's why I want to make sure I'm very careful what I put on my body because I've gotten to the point where uh, before I started really paying attention, close attention to what was going in my body, I was eating things that my body was reacting to. I, I was in my mid to late 30s and I had acting like a teenager and I could never figure it out. And so as I started changing the food and then I started changing what I, the products that I was using to put on my face, and the cleansers, everything, I finally got my face to clear up where I didn't feel like I was a 16 or 17-year-old all the time. <laughs> it's acne. Yeah, I actually use very simple products. That's one thing I learned from yeah. my mom. You know, um, Dove is a good product to use for your face, um, the soap. Um, right. Stuff, stuff like that. Very simple. Uh, and they're not expensive. That's the big thing. <laughs> the best products are so inexpensive. <laughs> right. So not only is it good for your body, it's good for your wallet. <laughs> Win-win. Well, stress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, as I got older, I discovered this because when I was in my 20s, I was one of those people who went to department stores and had makeup put on me and did all that bought all that expensive stuff and as like when I got when I was in my mid 30s living on my own and I realized I can't afford this stuff so I started looking for an alternative and I was reading a lot of magazine articles to see what I and I realized you can go to your drugstore get perfectly good makeup that's actually safer for you and better for you and better for your wallet, and it works just as well as the stuff you get at the department store, but it's actually better for you. Exactly. It's not, yeah, that's, and it, I mean, it takes that trial and error at that time, and you had a reason to search it out, right? You were trying to find less expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about you know, what the makeup was doing to me. It was more like what the makeup was doing to my wallet. <laughs> right, right. When you live at home, it's a big, you know, I, when I was in my 20s, I lived at home. Well, oh, until my late 20s. Um, in, uh, like, I, I moved out at 28 or 29. And, and but mo- before that, I lived at home, so all I was earning money, and I could spend it, you know, because I was, I, I mean, I had savings, I had a good, I had a savings account, I was saving for moving out and stuff, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> I was also spending. <laughs> That's an incentive to save more. It was, it was sort of sad, but I think I was a typical 20-year-old. I think most of us are like that. I think most of us were like that. I mean, we were inundated, really think about it, with, uh, 
What girl didn't look at magazines? True. I grew up with uh, Cosmopolitan. That was my teenage Bible. Mine was Glamour. <laughs> yes, that one as well, but I went for Cosmo first. <laughs> I like Cosmo because they had the male centerfold. <laughs> my first male centerfold was Burt Reynolds. <laughs> oh, how funny. I still remember it. I think I had to learn to depend on Cosmo because a lot of the things that my mother wouldn't talk to me about, she came from that mindset of if you don't tell them about it, they won't find out. And that's obviously not the case because there are friends and peer pressure in school and all kinds of stuff that kids will eventually find out. And in today's age, there's the Internet. But back then I didn't have any of that. The Cosmo was my uh, Bible book and what I could read on relationships and how to find a good, what they considered a good man and all of that kind of stuff. Little, very little about how to take care of yourself, but, you know, the important stuff about outfits that and accessorizing and makeup and all that stuff. It's funny because my mom was like, even with about my period, my mom was like that. Uh, yeah, she was so too. so grateful that I got, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret? <laughs> yes. Because it started the conversation, because I would, you know, I was, our family, we talked about books and movies and TV shows, so I, I was really, I got that when I was nine years old. It's really weird, Judy Bloom was there, because we were in New Jersey at that time. Uh-huh. And, and, um... I didn't, I, I I was like, oh, my gosh, she's the writer. But I didn't think, oh, would you sign my book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that comes later in life. Because <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I still have the book. Um, uh, and they're making a movie. I couldn't oh, believe it. All these cool. years later. <laughs> yeah, because it's a topic that still is, not exactly, I think it's a little bit easier to talk about it now, but it's still one of those difficult topics, regardless if it's a mother or father having to talk to their young daughter about. The, fun, the funny thing is, is that, okay, so I got this book, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, and I was telling my mom, because I had, you know, I was nine, I, I, I didn't get my period until I was like 12. So I was like, I'm never going to get my period. <laughs> so, but what was really interesting was my mother was the type who who couldn't talk to you about it, but she prepared for it. There was this thing with Codex that they used to have, like different pamph- uh a starter kit for teenagers, preteens. Uh-huh. And pamphlets that explained everything. So there was actually a, a pamphlet when your preteen starts asking about your period. She went to, she had a big box from Codex. And she went into her room, went into her closet, pulled, and I followed her because I didn't know what was going on. And she goes, hold on, honey. And she pulled out the big box. Open it's like codex all over the stuff. Oh. And she opened it up, she went through and she goes, Ah, 
and she found when your teenager starts asking you about their period and it's me because I have more here so when you have those questions I'm prepared <laughs> isn't that the sweetest thing <laughs> yes that is so sweet I mean having someone to go to period and be able to ask those questions makes a huge difference in trying to be in the moment panicked and embarrassed to ask Oh, but you still, it's weird, even though I had been reading the stuff, and I and I got all that information from the novel, and I got the, the stuff from my mom, when it happened, it's still scary. Uh-huh. You know? Absolutely. Uh, you, um, you, it happens, Mommy! <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she come in. And she knocks, come in, come in, come in. And she came in. I said, what? I go, it started, it started. She goes, what started? I'm pointing. (laughs) And she goes, oh, okay, honey, just a second. And she ran and got me that starter kit. (laughs) Perfect. I know. (laughs) But it was, it was like, it was like right out of the book. And I wasn't even thinking of the book. I was just thinking, what am I going to do? <laughs> That's going to be a good movie to have, to, to watch and think back to that. Because I had those books, too. Yeah, just, it, it's weird, but books have always been my friends. Books have always told me what to do when something it was wrong, you know? Oh, yeah. I can totally relate to that now. But ironically, growing up, I always, uh, the books were that form of escapism. I, I read stories that just romance or mm-hmm. the kind of like the Harry Potter before Harry Potter was a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just something that I could actually relate to. And then as an adult, it turned, especially stepping in as a caregiver, it became all nonfiction, uh, medical books, and very deep, dry topics. Some of that stuff was just hard to read, and then it was just a need, a need to know, and so I read all kinds of nonfiction books. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like I said, books are your friends. There's all different things with books. Books can be your teacher, which, which you're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, I need help with this. Get a book. Um, I mean, it's just like when you're little and you're asking, what is this? And your dad or your mom says, go look in the encyclopedia. I mean, children, encyclopedia was our Google. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's the true. Yep. We had a set in our room that um, – we got a new copy every month. It was, you know, adding to the alphabet or adding to um, a volume, whatever. Yeah, we had that too. I remember at the grocery store. Okay, uh, my dad would say to my, Dottie, what are we on? M. Okay, so we need N. Yeah, we need N. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Because it was at the grocery, they have this big display of encyclopedias, and they'd have each letter, and there'd be, you know, 
if you get this, you can get this too, so he could get N and O, because there's like a special price for both. <laughs> That's how we did our homework many times. Mm -hmm. Without going to the school library or the neighborhood library, we had our... Encyclopedia <laughs> Britannia. <laughs> I know, I know. Actually... It used sometimes it would annoy me because it was it wasn't the encyclopedia one it was the dictionary. Dad, how do you spell this? He goes, look it up in the dictionary. If I knew how to look it up in the dictionary, I would be looking it up in the dictionary. Oh, I remember that. Oh my gosh, yes. I don't know how to spell it. So how can, I don't know what the first letter is. How can I look it up in the dictionary? Right. <laughs> That was always, because Dad and Mom would always send us to the encyclopedia or the dictionary because they wanted us to learn. But exactly. it's like, um, there's certain words, the first letter is silent, like P. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, you think it's like psychiatrist, so it's an S. And you look under S, and there's nothing that's close to it. Where is it? <laughs> You know, stuff like that. That's the kind mm -hmm. of stuff I would say. If I knew how to spell it, I wouldn't be asking you. Yeah, it's frustrating, especially when you ask, what does the word mean? And they just use the word um, to describe it. It's like, that doesn't explain it. You use the word to explain it, and I'm still confused. <laughs> and it was the same thing. Well, go look it up in the dictionary. Well, how do you spell it? <laughs> like that. That conversation that just stuck in a loop. I know, I know. And it's like, <clears throat> so finally, like, if it was something like um, agnostic. Uh, oh, yes. It's like, that's really difficult. I knew it started with A, but it, is the second letter Q or G? You know? <laughs> right. I mean, right. stuff like that. You, It's not that easy. To look a word up in the dictionary if you have no idea how it's spelled. <laughs> and I wasn't one to go and look into words enough to be wanting to even be part of a spelling bee or anything. Oh like no, that. I was I was I'm still a terrible speller. <laughs> I'm better now. I'm more interested in it now as a writer, but yeah, not I I am too. Now. But I actually. <laughs> Before we had Google, I actually had this little set that has a dictionary, a thesaurus, and it's a tiny little set that I had on oh, the side my. of my desk. I still have it. Um, but, you know, I don't need it because the computer does it for you. Of course. Oh, everything's so much simpler now. I know. But, um, but it's so funny. But when we were kids, it wasn't like that. It was, you know... Word processors, you still had to know how to do things. It didn't fix it for you. I mean, it was better with a word processor because you could erase it on the screen instead of using the, you know, what darn stupid little pieces of thin oh, paper. Correction tape. Yeah. Oh, I hated those things. Because they always, like, I, I never got it to go right where I wanted it to. Uh, I, it, it would rip the paper sometime. The key would hit it and rip the paper, and it wouldn't even hit where I wanted it to erase. It was, oh, I hated those things. 
to use those anymore. I know. I mean, yeah, it, it was good because it, um, uh, that they were there, that you didn't have to scratch it out and stuff like that, or start again, or whatever. But at the same time, they were a pain. They really were. And just typing, I used my dad's old manual. I broke my nails on the darn thing. It was so funny. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and that's something that when Al and I see typewriters, I'm like, I can't believe we've gone so far from that. And yeah, there's some people still use I was watching the show. It's called Typewriter. It's really interesting. It's a documentary. And it talked about all the people who still use Tom Hanks still uses a typewriter. I'm actually not surprised that that was him. That that seems like it fits. Yeah, they taught um, uh, the late David McCullough, the historian, used a typewriter all the way. I mean, he he said he when he wanted to do some editing work, he would uh, transfer it into the computer by using that. I forgot what they call it. It's like a thing that you can go across the paper, and you can like put it into your computer. Mm. But he still did his initial work on his typewriter. That's so cool. I know. And I just thought it was fascinating. I still have my dad's typewriter. I think it adds a lot more credibility to that person that they are willing because it's so easy to type now and not have to worry about errors and corrections. But to take the time and put the effort into using an actual old-school typewriter... Oof. Well, it's just like, and I have to admit, I'm guilty. Nobody writes letters anymore. I know, I know. Finding cards, I like sending cards to where I can handwrite in them, not just sign your name to something that's already in there, Hallmark, Hallmark style, but to actually put your own thoughts in there in addition to, I think, it, in your handwriting is different. And I even still use cursive handwriting, which seems to be disappearing as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I When I when I sign my books or when I uh, write my cards, I use cursive. My cursive is a lot easier to read than my regular printing. My regular printing looks like Chinese hieroglyphs. <laughs> a combination of Chinese uh, symbols and the hieroglyphs, the two of them together, that is my printing. <laughs> But my handwriting is readable. <laughs> Which is important. Mm-hmm. Well, at least, except for when I do my signature, I have to admit, when I sign my last name, it's kind of like a big squiggle. You've got the rock star signature. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was told. But I always did that, even before I even, uh, I, I thought I was going to be like, Oh, what did, I learned this term from William Shatner when he did an interview when I was a kid. I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be a journeyman actor. Just somebody Aww. who played a lot of different parts. And it wasn't what the part was. It was about being an actor. And this was when he um, apparently was... I, can't, I, I must have been about 10... And it was after Star Trek, but before he did start doing other TV series. 
and he he says I like playing different characters and I like doing different parts. He he uh, he was still famous, but he wasn't doing the movies and stuff. So that's why he was saying he was a journeyman actor. And I mean, I guess he can still be a journeyman actor. I mean, I, I actually see that more as a, a British actor. British actors do whatever the part. They do little parts and big parts and. They do TV and film and theater, and they don't care as long as it's a great part. Uh, that it's very different than American actors. They they want to be doing the big parts. <laughs> right. So I mean, I actually have much more respect for the British actors because they have that old world idea that a part is the most important thing, and and having a good part is what's important.
friends. So, um, what oh, exactly. So I understand. I mean, that you did that is amazing. I was so mired in trying to help my mother that I wasn't even thinking in those terms. I just was trying to help her. <laughs> yes, and that's what happens to so many caregivers. I mean, when I started looking into the research and coming up to numbers that say, I don't know, there's far more, but uh, five years ago, 2015, it was 43 million in the U.S., and that's just the U.S., and then five years later, there's 53 million, and that, I mean, you can see the growth is going so fast, and so caregivers are just trying to survive. They're just trying to get by, and if they don't know, then that's what becomes their stressor, and that's what eventually also causes them to get sick and in some cases even pass before their loved ones that they're caring for. Yeah. So it was it was that compelling feeling that I, I had to do it. And it must be at more difficult if it's like one of the uh mental illnesses of aging like uh um dementia or Alzheimer's and stuff like that. Did you right. did you talk about? I mean, I'm not saying that it, I'm not saying that's had anything to do with your mom. I'm just saying, did did you cover it for your book? I did because growing up, my mother actually was living with manic depressive bipolar disorder, uh-huh. and so we avoided her a lot because we didn't understand. Even with that in itself, we didn't understand the ups and downs with her mood swings and um, it wasn't just trying to avoid getting in, from getting in trouble of bad grades or not doing chores or anything like that but the mood swings were just unexplainable period and um, hearing my dad always refer to her as being crazy and we kind of adopted that idea that it's just crazy mom and eventually realizing that there's the issue there that we're we shouldn't be dismissing as just crazy mom it, it didn't seem fair when i as, as an adult looking back and so the mental health issues when i started to research more about dementia because that's what eventually did touch her life she was diagnosed with vascular dementia then early alzheimer's and then finally the frontal temporal dementia. And so going through all of that and, and doing the flashback of how did this happen? Because you could read all the medical journals and it'll explain each form, but I still came back to, but how did this happen? And, and how did you find it? How did you find out? So, As I was digging into the definitions of what dementia is, I started to really look into, well, what is our brain and how does it function? And why does it seem to affect people? Why do we lose the left brain first and and retain the right brain? All of the symptoms were, this is what you could point out and this is what you could expect to see or this is what you might come across first. But I kept asking over and over, like that perpetual five-year-old, but why? Mm -hmm. But why? And so I kept looking to the next thing and the next thing. And I found that in treating mental health, there was looking at the physical side of it, and then there was looking at the emotional side of it. Mm -hmm. And learning 
what my mother lived with and how she basically had really poor habits with food and sleep and exercise, I could see how the lack of those habits contributed to her deterioration. And so I kept seeing this as a disease. I just didn't want to buy it. I didn't want to accept it that it's a disease. Because if this is a disease, that means I might have this disease too. And if this is really genetic, then this is going to be my life too. And I just refused to accept that. I don't know if it was just pure vanity or panic and fear about it, but there was just something about it that I could not and didn't want to accept. And when I started coming across more literature and even other doctors finally coming forth and explaining that dementia is not entirely genetic, it was just this wonderful feeling that, oh my gosh, how many people know this? How many people realize they can change their habits right now and we can slow this epidemic of dementia if people just knew how to stop it from happening? I think it was incredible. I think it's so sad. I mean, think about the things that you were t- discussing. Manic depression, people who didn't know what it was, doctors who didn't know what it was. Uh-huh. Vivian Lee had it. Patty Duke had it. There were a lot of people who had it. No right. idea what was wrong with them. Um, doing the worst possible things, drinking and stuff like that, to, and, and drugs to deal with um um, Vivian Lee did the drinking. Patty Duke did the drugs to try to deal with it, and right. and never it was worse for them. And and it was stuff that the doctors told you know to have a drink it'll calm you down. No, that's the worst thing you can do. You know? or, I know. Uh, it, or the tranquilizers they gave Patty Duke. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. And then the saddest thing was like. Um, Alzheimer's was Rita Hayworth. That's how we found out what that was. If it wasn't uh, for Rita's uh, daughter, um, Princess Jasmine, coming forward and saying, hey, this is a disease. My mother was not an alcoholic. My mother had Alzheimer's. And she came out and told exactly what was going on. This is the first time the world has heard of it. Right. Uh, exactly. These things were very important. These These the people coming forward and saying, yeah, Patty Duke coming forward and saying, I have manic depression. That's what started people knowing what it was. Uh, and uh, the daughter of Rita Hayworth doing the same thing. If it weren't for these people brave enough to come forward and saying, look, this is what I have, this is or what my parents had, we would we would still be in the dark. Exactly. Yes, and that's why my mother. Growing up, we never talked about this. We just, it got brushed under the rug. It was treated like it was a secret, a family secret that we can't let people know because what will they think of us? And it passed, again, those are the ideas that kind of passed on to us. And so being out in public and and especially working in the corporate world, having to tell them I need to take time because I have to take my mom to the doctor. Well, why? Well, because she has some tests that she has to take. Well, why? Well, because she's having to get her medication adjusted for her bipolar disorder. And it just felt so like like a dirty secret that was released. 
and that I would be treated differently or unfairly because, oh, you have a mother with bipolar disorder. Well, no wonder you can't get your job done in a, to in a timely manner, or no wonder you, uh, we can't bully you into going past your body limits, and no wonder. It just, I realized then that it was, it made me feel like it was a shameful thing to have to mention to anyone. I can't imagine being the person who was actually living with it. Yeah. And the thing is, is that they had no right to question you like that. No, it's, and that's where I, I stepping out of the corporate world was probably the best thing. Of course, when I first did it, I was really angry at my mother for not taking better care of herself because I didn't understand the depth of her mental health and how much she could have done. But even still, some things she never knew and some things she did know but didn't have the self-discipline to do it and stay consistent with everything. And so when I stepped out, I was angry with her. But at the same time, looking back, it was the best thing I could have done to be able to take, learn how to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, the, I mean, that's part of it, too, is that uh, we learn for ourselves as well as for the loved ones. Right. And now I am able to teach my sons. And so this generational habits that have been happening, because that's the way I started to understand it, is that dementia isn't exactly a disease, as it's discussed. That's all that they knew in the past several decades, so it's always been this disease, disease, disease. But when you start to really look into it and understand how it happens, it's a deterioration from lack of self-care. I mean, this is something that I take very personal now, and I want I to the point where I want to use myself as that guinea pig. And I started to work with a nutritionist last year because I am at that age that my mother started showing signs. I am going to be I am 47, and so this year I'll be 48. And I looking back through chronological chronological order of how her symptoms started to appear, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm at that age. I have to do something now, or this could become my story. So I started working with the nutritionist last year to make a difference in my life and show others. When you hit 50, it changes. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing much you can do. <laughs> um, I mean, even if you take really good care of yourself, you still, body still is letting you know, okay, you're over 50. We're going to give you problems. <laughs> of course. Of course. And that's, a lot of it is because what we see on TV, you know, commercials, for example, that are designed to say part of a healthy breakfast or part of a healthy diet, even some of the stuff that's discussed, and what I'm learning with my nutritionist is that if we could just control how much sugar we eat, we would be able to be far better off, healthier, avoiding wheat and gluten products, which I've had to switch over to that this past year, and it's been difficult. It's honestly been, I never, never saw myself having to change my appetite or my diet so much to where I'm looking for gluten-free everywhere I go and seeing the limitations everywhere I go that sometimes I don't want a salad. <laughs> I just don't. And 
between the energy and seeing, well, if I'm going to start having some aging, normal aging, because yes, I am getting closer to that 50 mark, then what can I do to help my body to age a little slower? I know I can't fight gravity, but what can I do to help it age a little slower? Yeah, yeah none of us can fight gravity. That's one of the things. <laughs> <laughs> I, all I can say is thank God for push-up bras. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a major issue. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not that, it, you know, everybody deals with that or has to deal with that, but, you know, every little assistance helps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with natural, uh, wholesome assistance. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's funny because my I have some wrinkles around my mouth and around my eyes, but my forehead is clear and my cheeks are clear. I don't have a pumpkin thing yet or any of that stuff that you get when you get older. Mm-hmm. But I know, but I still look at my, but you don't look there. You look where they are. Right. <laughs> of course. You don't look where they're not. And it's the things that we focus on, right? We focus on our flaws more than our not so, or what we consider. Because someone else will see it and say, "That's." I just thought about it when you were describing it. I thought she must be a person who smiles and laughs a lot if you have wrinkles around your mouth, which means you've been having a, more of a joyful life. Yeah. So that's what comes to mind for me. I'm sure when you look in the mirror, that's not what you're thinking. No, you're no. thinking something else. I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm getting old. Exactly. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's just sort of sad. <clears throat> but, you know, I, I, I did try to take care of myself. I walk. I do yoga. I meditate. Um, I, I, I do good skin care. Um, you know, stuff like that, but it doesn't stop the wrinkles. <laughs> no, and that's where I've, you know, on the fence with, we all need to drink water. Yeah. Water, not water. carbonated, yeah. fizzy flavor drinks, but water. I actually have no and problem with water. I drink water all the time. I like water. I love that. <laughs> you know, any times I've, I've mentioned that to people, how that I that it can help with your mental focus, it'll help if you're feeling any headaches or backaches even because when our body needs water, it pulls from our hip joints and it pulls from our spine. I've had injuries because, in fact, this last December I injured my spine because I was dehydrated. I was working on a project and didn't even focus on how much water I was drinking. But I've had people say, oh, I hate water. It's so bland. And I thought, well, that's because you're too used to all the sugar drinks. And maybe you're a coffee drinker that likes the bitterness, but they're so used to that that they won't drink water. Yeah, I have a condition I had to give up coffee and chocolate. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know. I love coffee and I, I love mean, chocolate. <laughs> if I had to give up chocolate, my heart would break. <laughs> it's like, oh. Dark chocolate, that is. What did I ever do to you? <laughs> you know, to my body. What 
did I ever right, do to right. you to make you do this to me? Uh, um, but yeah, but I, I mean, I I had given up uh, carbonated a long time ago. I I switched to tea like years ago because it I. And this has nothing to do with anybody telling me to do it. It was more like I could feel the difference in reaction. I've always drank water. I've always had water. But I could feel the difference in reaction between uh, drinking herbal tea and water and, um, you know, juice, and mm-hmm. a, as opposed to soda or or um, or um Coke or Pepsi or something or Seven Up or something like that. Right. I actually would feel it as I got older that it was I, I'm getting a sluggish feeling from it that if uh-huh. I does if I if I don't have any of that and I'm just drinking water all day I don't get it. But right. I just said okay anyway it will save me money so bye and I stopped <laughs> buying it. <laughs> it was. Both uh, physical and financial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the face cream. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. But I'm glad because at drinking water more often, it's going to help you help your body. Period. Because that was another thing that I found with my mother was that she had this incredible sweet tooth, and she didn't like to drink water. But whenever I took her to the doctor's office for, a, and I knew it was going to be a day for a blood draw, my goodness, her blood was like molasses. It was the hardest thing to find the veins and actually get enough vials. Some of times they had to do what they could because they could barely get maybe an inch worth in a vial because her blood was so thick. And that they would tell me going forward from now on when you know her appointment's coming, a day to two days in advance, get her to push as much water as possible. I'm like, okay, I'll keep my fingers crossed, but she's not a water drinker. Just makes that much of a difference. Yeah. Which which means our hearts are working harder when your blood is that thick. That's that's actually kind of scary. Yes, and people don't consider that when they have their sodas and their sweet coffees and their their drinks. Period. That are not. I don't know, not value-added. And that's the way I started to see it. And that's how I started to kind of wean myself off of the things that I was drinking is that these were habits I grew up with. And these were habits that were not exactly great, you know, right or wrong, whatever, but they weren't healthy for me. They weren't going to help me maintain energy as a caregiver. They weren't going to help me process at night when I could have, junk sitting on my body overnight and wake up a few pounds heavier or it can help my body in different ways Mm -hmm. so it just it like you said I started feeling the difference when I started changing things from coffee to green tea or no more sodas and just really feeling the change in my body yeah and not realizing that could have made that big of a change it is amazing um I'm going to make a little transition. I want to talk about your book and where you can get it and how you can get it and all that kind of good stuff. Absolutely. So the book is called The Proactive Caregiver, Stop Reacting to Life, Start Living Proactively. And you can find it on my website, proactivecaregiver.com, 
Or you can also go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online as well. And you can get it in hardback, paperback, or the Audible version. And that's just the best way, the fastest way that you would be able to get the book. And what's your website? It is www.proactivecaregiver.com, and that's spelled exactly like the, the book itself, P-R-O-A-C-T-I-V-E, and care, C-A-R-E, and giver, G-I-V-E-R.com. And do you have social media? What social media is there? I am. I'm on Instagram as Proactive Caregiver, and TikTok, and uh, Facebook is listed as Jessica Lizelle Cannon. Okay. And do you have any events coming up that you would like anybody to know about, that, or, or any online or in person? At this point, we've just completed some events, and going forward is going to be continuing with uh, the Proactive Caregiver podcast. So I am looking for caregivers who would like to share their stories and get their information, things they've experienced and how they overcame or maybe how they're stuck in, in their world of caregiving. And it doesn't have to be dementia-related. It's more of being proactive and self-care for the caregiver. Yeah, my my mom was uh, physical. It was um, it was uh, problems with um, bleeding and and stuff like that. And mm. we went from doctor to doctor. It was awful. Um, there were some very nasty, very good doctors and some very nasty doctors. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes, there is. Which is why second opinions are always the best route to go. Yeah. I know. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of the day to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Definitely. I appreciate being here, and I hope that we're able to spark some more proactive caregivers out there because it is, I have the book, and yes, it's what I want to share with people most, but I want to create more proactive caregivers to solve this growing epidemic of dementia. Yeah. I think that's a very important uh, goal. I, I congratulate you. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming on my show. Absolutely. And I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. <laughs>